Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, September 7th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. An upcoming budget fight in Congress may impact some of the Democrats' green climate goals, but there is one thing both sides may agree on when it comes to electric cars. I think eliminating AM radio from new cars and trucks is a terrible idea. We speak with Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz. I'm Chris Foster. As more kids settle back in school, coronavirus cases are up in the U.S. The real numbers are that about half a million people per day have gotten COVID over the last six or seven weeks based on wastewater data. And that is consistent with a sort of seasonal respiratory infection. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The Senate is back this week. The House comes back next. And as Democrats and Republicans fight over the next fiscal year budget, some of that fight could impact the president's and Democrats' green energy policy goals, like certain green tax incentives and the federal government's purchasing of electric cars. The government plans to buy thousands of EVs, even as the industry is having mixed results with the rest of us. The infrastructure isn't ready. The cars cost too much. We really need to pay attention to what consumers actually want. AEG CEO Patrick Anderson was recently on Fox Business. While EVs are breaking sales records, evidence also shows increasing EV inventory piled up at car dealerships. There's also the issue of our electric grids, though. Are they all reliable enough, especially during severe weather events, to handle an increased demand for electricity? Former Texas Governor Rick Perry told this podcast last month that's been a critical consideration as officials reflect on the deadly winter storm that hit Texas is two years ago, leaving some without power for days. Had it not been for fossil fuels in the state of Texas, natural gas in particular, the grid would have collapsed. And that is a catastrophic event. The first power supplies offline in 2021 were wind and solar. Now, another consideration during the push for electric cars is what we will listen to when we are in them. And this has actual bipartisan support. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey co-authored a bill with a Republican to keep AM radio in electric cars. Automakers are making the foolish decision to remove AM radio from many new vehicles. This is the definition of penny wise and pound foolish. Several EV car makers are trying to remove AM radio due to an interference issue with the electric car motor. We had a really important legislative victory uh, at the end of July on the last day. The Senate was in session before August. Ted Cruz is a Republican senator from Texas. The Commerce Committee passed my legislation, the AM Radio for Every Vehicle Act, passed it with an overwhelming bipartisan vote. And the issue, as you'll recall, is, is earlier this year, Eight different automakers announced that they were pulling AM radios out of new cars and new trucks. And and I think that was a terrible development. I think that really hurts people all across this country. Roughly 80 million Americans listen to AM radio on a monthly basis. And and 40 percent of them listen to it in their cars and trucks. And, and it 
AM radio is critically important at times of disaster. Obviously, we're dealing with the hurricane in Florida, also hurricane in California not too long earlier than that. And, and right. it, in times of disaster, AM radio is the most resilient form of informing people how to get out of harm's way. Other media go down. And AM radio has proven consistently reliable. It, it also disproportionately impacts rural America, a lot of parts of, of West Texas, a lot of farmers and ranchers. The only thing they can get into the AM radio, whether it's for crop reports and weather reports or sports or entertainment or news. And then on top of that, AM radio enables enormous diversity because the barriers to entry to getting into AM radio are quite low. That's enabled mm-hmm. hundreds of radio stations owned by African-Americans, owned by Hispanics, owned by women. That gives a diversity of views. But also critically, AM radio has been an oasis for free speech and in particular for conservative talk radio. And so I think eliminating AM radio from new cars and trucks is a terrible idea. It sounds like Ford, last time we talked, Ford had said, okay, fine, we will keep AM radios and EVs for now. But then other car makers said, you know what? the fix to stop the interference and the buzz, it's not worth the expense. This legislation would say, sorry, it's not worth the expense, but you've got to spend the money to fix this and keep these in your cars. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. What happened was I teamed up with Ed Markey. Ed Markey may well be the most liberal member of the U.S. Senate. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts. And the two of us introduced this legislation. It's Markey Cruz. And within days of introducing the legislation, as you just mentioned, Ford changed their position. They publicly announced, never mind, we're going to include AM radio and new cars and trucks. I'm glad they did. I I think they looked at Ed Markey and me teaming up, the most liberal member of the Senate, the most conservative member of the Senate, both coming together. I think they said, this is a sign of the apocalypse. We don't want anything to do with this, so we give up. That's a good thing. Look, the other car makers are digging in a little bit, and and they're complaining about cost. Look, the, the, the cost estimates are that this is really minimal to avoid the problem. And and I think what this is, is this is another example of, of big companies being willing to, to act to silence conservative voices and to deplatform conservative voices. And we've seen that pattern too many times, whether in big tech or, or big business, using corporate power to silence voices they disagree with. I don't want to see that happen. I can tell you when we took it up in the Senate Commerce Committee, it passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Right now in the Senate, I've got 17 Republican co-sponsors, 17 Democrat co-sponsors. That is unusual to see that kind of bipartisan (laughs) agreement. So I think this legislation is going to move, and I think it needs to move, and I think that's a very good thing. Senator, talk to me about EVs themselves. I know that they've been selling. They reached their own record sales high this summer, but they are still piling up on dealer lots, so it seems like demand yeah. isn't matching supply. I get the feeling some charging issues maybe need to be sorted out, not just stations out of the house, but installing those level two chargers at home. But what's your sense to Americans? I know some automakers have said Americans just don't want them in, in the amounts that yeah. we're making them. What, what, what's your sense of this? The point you're making is exactly right. I've talked with a lot of car dealers in Texas who say that the car companies are forcing them to buy a whole bunch of electric vehicles and the EVs are sitting on their lots because consumers are not coming in and not wanting to buy them. And what we're seeing is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the Democrats just shoveling billions of dollars trying to force these choices on consumers, what they want to do. One of the reasons the Biden administration has waged a war on U.S. oil and gas production is because the increase in gasoline prices 
That's what Biden and the Democrats want. They want gasoline prices to be so high that you'll take in your truck or your minivan and you'll trade it in for a little Prius. That's that's the outcome they want. I think a lot of consumers are making different choices, and I think it ought to be up to you. And I got to say, from a perspective of U.S. national security, when it comes to oil and gas, America is the world's superpower. We're the number one producer of oil in the world. We're the number one producer of natural gas in the world. That is, being energy independent is incredibly important to protecting the American economy, protecting the American people. With Biden and the Democrats trying to shift us overwhelmingly to EVs, I'll tell you, when it comes to wind and solar, the vast majority of the parts and equipment and rare earth metals that are needed for wind and solar, China, communist China, has a stranglehold on. And the idea that we would shift from an energy source that America is dominant in to an energy source that communist China is dominant in, that is not in America's national security interest. And yet Democrats are trying to force it on consumers anyway. Before Congress went on break, there were quite a few hearings about grid failures, grid concerns, especially during tough weather events. You know it well. Texas has had its issues with providing power, as we saw in the winter storm a couple of years back. Does Congress need to address grid resiliency you know, if, if there is this push for electric cars, what could Congress do? What should Congress do when it comes to saying, OK, fine, regardless of electric cars, we need a stronger grid? So there's no doubt we need improvements in the resiliency of our electric grids. In Texas, that's a state matter. The state has its own grid. And I think state policymakers have, have by and large, done a good job. We need to enhance the resiliency of the grid. And that this actually keys into this issue. So Texas right now is the number one producer of wind energy in the country. We actually beat California. But a challenge is in extreme weather events, wind and solar tend to be a lot less reliable. And so they tend to go out precisely at the time when you need them most. And so if you wanna look at resilience of the grid, you wanna look at things like natural gas, and you wanna, you wanna look at things like coal and, and actually The reason America has led the world in reductions of carbon emissions, we lead the world every year in reducing carbon emissions, is because we've seen a wholesale substitution of natural gas for coal in electricity production. If you actually really care about the environment, you should be a full-throated advocate of natural gas, and yet Democrats are trying to shut natural gas down, which is bad for the environment. And so when it comes to grid resiliency, I think we need to be looking at energy sources that provide electricity that are reliable in times of inclement weather, that are not intermittent, that don't just happen when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, but that can be relied on no matter what's happening. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so before I let you go, I need your thoughts on what we're hearing in relation to Russia, that Vladimir Putin's reportedly going to meet with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. And I want to read you what the Wall Street Journal writes. The Russian, meaning Putin, is looking for more weapons, and the North Korean dictator would apparently like nuclear submarine technology. Mr. Putin has also been hitting up Iran for drones, and Russia may conduct joint naval drills with North Korea and China. That is a whole lot of U.S. adversaries joining together, it sounds like. What what do you make of uh, meeting with Kim Jong-un and Russia's, uh, I guess, attempt at getting more weapons from such an adversary? Listen, it it is unfortunately the latest manifestation of Joe Biden and the Democrats' catastrophic foreign policy. Literally every enemy of America is stronger today. Every single region of the world has gotten worse. 
And, and you compare where we were, think about where we were in 2020 on foreign policy, where the enemies of America were getting weaker. We saw peace blossoming in the Middle East as the Abraham Accords were signed, as Arabs and Israelis were coming together. I was on the South Lawn of the White House for the signing of the Abraham Accords. Where are we now? Joe Biden came in in his first year. He showed weakness and appeasement to every enemy of America. He surrendered to the Taliban and abandoned Afghanistan. The result of that is the enemies of America were emboldened. And instead of having, as we had in 2020, now we have Russians and Chinese and Iranians and North Koreans all coming together because the Biden administration is so weak. And if you look at right now, you know, you're talking about well, wait, Russia Senator, could, could you argue? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I have to ask you, though. Could you sure, argue, yeah. though, that driving Russia to North Korea is actually a sign of, of the weakness of the situation, that they're not getting what they need in Iranian drones and from China, that they have to resort to North Korea? So I, I don't think it is. I think it's an example of every bully and tyrant on planet Earth. Every enemy of America is emboldened because they look at the Oval Office and they're taking a measure of the commander in chief and, and they've determined that he's weak and feckless. So so, for example, why did the Ukraine war happen? It happened because Joe Biden personally waived the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that Russia was building to Germany. I authored those sanctions. Those are bipartisan sanctions that I wrote, that I passed into law. We shut that pipeline down. It prevented a war in Europe. Joe Biden came in and immediately capitulated to Vladimir Putin, gave him everything he want, waived the sanctions, and it precipitated Russia invading Ukraine. The, the, our enemies are getting stronger, and, and that's the same reason you see Russia and North Korea getting together, because our enemies are banding together against, unfortunately, a, a weak president, and, and that's dangerous for America. Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jessica. Appreciate it. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. With reports of coronavirus cases rising in the U.S., Ohio Senate Republican J.D. Vance is proposing a bill that would ban federal mask mandates through the end of 2024. This is coming back unless we stop it from happening. That's why I introduced this legislation, and I'm going to force the Democrats to vote on it. There are a few places where masking has been brought back, required temporarily, for example, at Morris Brown College in Atlanta, Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and for some third graders in Silver Spring, Maryland. Masks are recommended to be worn in public schools in Talladega, Alabama. Well, there's a couple of schools that have reported three or more cases in this school, uh, you know, it always begs the question how many cases are really being tested. Fox News medical contributor Johns Hopkins University Med School and School of Public Health professor Dr. Marty McCary. Generally, people are not testing as frequently. The CDC does not track cases anymore. So they're flying by their hip a lot of times. And it looks like right now there are the normal seasonal respiratory infections that are circulating and COVID is part of that. Yeah, I mean, any parent knows that it's the season for kid crud coming back into their households and for kids especially or back to the conversations we've been having for the past few years 
how dangerous is COVID compared to these other viruses unless you have somebody very vulnerable at home? First of all, we don't know if any healthy child has ever died of COVID. The CDC won't release that data in one study of half of the nation's commercial data that my research team at Johns Hopkins did. It was zero. All the children who had died, which was approximately the same number who died from uh, RSV and influenza combined per year, uh, all of them had a comorbid condition. Germany also did a study, zero healthy children, five through 17. So if we know that these interventions don't reduce transmission, what are the options? They're not great. I mean, there's no perfect solution. Your options are profound social isolation, which we know has serious mental health consequences, or you accept some risk as we do when we get into our car. There's a bunch of seasonal viruses. We've accepted the risk with all of them for decades, centuries. Uh, COVID it does not have a different infection fatality risk. And matter of fact, it's more mild as time progresses. We know that um, you know, cases are up again. We're in an upswing. Uh, like you said, there's not as much um, there's not as much CDC mandated reporting anymore. And then a lot of people are just home testing now because you can and it's easy and nobody's telling anybody. Uh, nobody's reporting that. So you go by hospitalizations, which are what up, but not necessarily as concerning as they had been in, in a big yeah, spike like last summer. The hospital numbers are, are again, inflated as they have been throughout the uh, pandemic, but they're more and more inflated as COVID becomes more an incidental infection. People are getting tested and getting labeled as a COVID-positive patient in the hospital. CDC reports about 10,000 of these patients per week. We don't know how many are there truly for COVID. We know that people with heart failure will come in with a mild rhinovirus or Coxsackievirus or other common cold virus and it will sort of push them over the edge. It will make them sicker. But with COVID, there's a stigma, and these numbers have been reported in ways that are not accurate. People who want to promote a more dangerous pandemic than is actually happening will often cite those inflated numbers. The real numbers are that about half a million people per day have gotten COVID over the last six or seven weeks based on wastewater data, and that is consistent with a sort of seasonal respiratory infection. I was going to ask you about the wastewater testing. How expensive is it? How difficult is it? How common is it? And importantly, how useful is it? What do you do with that information once you found that there might be an uptick in a, in a neighborhood, say? Well, if we had good interventions to stop the transmission of COVID, then it would be more useful because there is a canary in the coal mine phenomena where we can see a signal in the wastewater before we see sort of people show up in the hospital. But at this low level of infection, it's not very helpful. Look, I would love to tell you that masks are effective. I would love to tell you that a seventh COVID booster shot would be very effective in reducing transmission, but they're not. If we believe in science and we do those studies and they tell us they are not effective interventions, the real question is, what do you do with the information we garnish from wastewater data? And the reality is that it's just not a perfect situation. New vaccines are coming probably this month. I don't know if they'll be on shelves this month, but they'll probably be approved quite soon. Um, what round are we now in? In, in what, you know, where are we with the vaccines? Is it the, is it the third, the fourth? I forget. And and how are these different than the past? How are they formulated differently? Yeah, this is a newly designed COVID vaccine. It was based on a variant that circulated earlier this year called the XBB variant. Um, it does appear to be if, uh, effective against the current two strains in circulation, but we don't know if those are going to be the, the variants in circulation 
when this vaccine gets released. And even though it's effective in the laboratory in producing neutralizing antibodies, we have no human outcomes data on this new COVID vaccine. And uh, it does not appear to work against this new Parola variant, which may not become the dominant variant. Some indication is that it is very different, but is not going to dominate. But if it is uh, this new vaccine, it will not be effective against it based on the laboratory data. So um, I would love to tell people, go out, get the new vaccine if there were data to support it, but we don't have that. We have this bizarre new regulatory process where the president says it works. Karine Jean-Pierre said it worked from the White House uh, press office, but we have zero clinical data on it. It is just another sort of, you know, uh, vaccine enthusiasm that we've seen in the past. This is a vaccine that will probably get recommended for every American over age 12. September 12th is when the CDC is recommend, going to recommend it for everybody. Between now and then, we expect the FDA to approve it based on no human trial data. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I misread something or maybe you just didn't see it. Moderna apparently has come out and said, look, this what, what we've got actually is pretty effective against um BA286, but again, that's neither here nor there. If if, if that's not going to become dominant, and so far as you know, it's been seen in a couple states, maybe four states, I guess. So, if the CDC says, are they making it available to everyone, or are they recommending it for everyone? And what do you tell patients if you're? Do you tell them, look, it's like the flu shot. Just get, do you say get it when the new one comes out? Do you say even if a new one's not out, does the efficacy wane over a year or whatever it is? Yeah, I like to practice evidence-based medicine. So until I see some clinical data, I will not be recommending this novel COVID vaccine. We'll have to see what the data show. But if somebody is low risk, you've got to recognize the previous COVID vaccines do have risks. One in 556 doses results in a serious adverse event, according to the Freeman study published in the journal Vaccine. And in the German study, one in 5,000 doses had a serious adverse event. In young males, we know one in 2,800 develop uh, myocarditis after the second Moderna dose. It's not risk-free, and that's why I would tell people to be cautious. Dr. Uh, Vinay Prasad and Tracy Beth Hogan, I, with others, published an analysis that asked the question, if we broadly um, have all college students get the booster shot, is there a net public health benefit or a net public health harm because of the myocarditis and other complications? And the finding was there was a net public health harm. So I would caution people to run to this uh, new COVID vaccine. I just don't, cannot envision why a five-year-old girl will need 77 COVID shots in her average lifespan, as is sort of the bandwagon thinking among some public health officials. What's the difference between these vaccines and other just general, you know, as part of a regimen that, that you might recommend, like, like a flu shot? Complication rates much higher with the COVID vaccine. And I don't mean to suggest that it's uh, dangerously high or prohibitively high for people who are high risk. It certainly wasn't in the early part of the pandemic when it was a better match. But it appears as if you get sort of a three-month sugar high where you get transient increased protection against the infection, and then that wanes and you go back to baseline protection. There's also some concern of a multiple booster strategy slightly weakening the immune system. We don't know. We don't have good data on it. But the flu shot, which is the only other medication that gets through the FDA without a formal clinical trial each year, it's got a 50-year safety record. 
very different from the novel mRNA vaccines where people have concerns. The last time the, the Biden administration and FDA boldly recommended a new COVID vaccine, the so-called bivalent vaccine last fall, uh, only 17% of Americans took it. And some of those were just simply required to for school or work. So if we really want to win public support and restore public trust and public health, Pfizer made $100 billion during the pandemic. They can afford to do a rapid clinical trial and tell us whether or not it works. Dr. McCary, tell me about this uh, this new study on masking. So the Cochrane Review is considered the most authoritative review in all of medicine. They've done systematic reviews looking at all the research that's been done on a topic, and they come up with conclusions. Every time I've seen a conclusion from a Cochrane Review in medicine in my lifetime, it has been broadly accepted because it's considered to be so scientifically rigorous. So they did a study on every research study on masks and concluded that masks had no impact on the epidemic whatsoever. And a lot of doctors think if you put two people in a room with a tightly fitting N95 mask, sure, you can reduce the transmission during that interaction. But on a community level, on a population level, in schools, when kids are wearing cloth masks and you cannot have a tight fitting, high quality mask, you can't wear it for a, for a long period of time. That's why the data showed that masks simply don't work. I would love it if they did work. I would love to be able to tell people this is something you can do to significantly reduce the transmission. But if we're going to believe in science, we have got to listen to the results. Masks were the largest public health intervention in modern medical history. We have now formally studied it. If we're going to do research, we've got to listen to the results. Dr. Martin McCary, Fox News contributor, Johns Hopkins University professor. Uh, Dr. McCary, thanks. Talk to you soon. Good to be with you. Thanks. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? A new story out of Australia went viral last week focused on a mother who will not let her 15-year-old son have a part-time job because she thinks the childhood ought to be carefree and without the burden of work that adults must face. Predictably, there was no shortage of backlash over this idea, and while I'm not one who tends to judge the parenting choices of others, it did make me remember my own teenage jobs and why they were important to me, as they were for so many Americans. For many of us, our first job as a teenager was a profound memory as a veritable hidden world of the workforce, lacking the protections of family or school, opened up to us. For me, it was a paper route on chilly, still dark autumn mornings, the snap of the plastic band, the smell of the broadsheets, and eventually the not always so easy collecting of the subscribers' money. At the time, I didn't know that I was part of a long tradition. The first paperboy, 10-year-old Barney Flaherty, started the industry in 1833 after answering an ad in the New York Sun. And just like that, the plucky Irish kid had launched a cultural phenomenon. Throughout the rest of the 19th and into the 20th century, American society struggled with the appropriate work-life balance for teens. Child labor laws protected kids from abuse, but also carved out exceptions for lighter part-time work. This was really as much about instilling a work ethic as it was about economic opportunity for youth, and it tended to work. 
We all know that a dollar earned sits rather differently in the pocket than a dollar bestowed, its value tethered directly to our labor. The good news is that the number of 16 to 19-year-olds either working or looking has ticked up to 37%, according to the Labor Department. That's the highest since 2019. The bad news is that in 1979, that number was 58%. The societal upshot of this is that most people born in the early 60s had experienced manual or retail labor, even those who went on to more respected professions. They learned, low those years ago, that the marvels of the modern world didn't just magically exist for them. They were and are maintained by people who shower after work, not before. In 2020, amid COVID-19, how many of the current professional class came to understand that they aren't quite as important as they thought they were? They saw sanitation workers and delivery men make the world go round from their living room laptops, which before too long, with artificial intelligence, may render them obsolete, despite their degrees. Yet still the American worker is taken for granted today. Once considered the firm and moral backbone of the nation, the working class is all but mocked by elites with soft, clean hands. The left calls them suckers for not demanding socialism, while at the same time sending the workers tax dollars to pay off the student loans of the college educated with their gender studies degrees. The right too often sends the message that if you're not a top 10% high value human already rich off cryptocurrency and aspiring for a private jet, then what even is the point of you? Among the best ways to combat these pernicious attitudes is for teenagers of all means and walks of life to experience the pride and dignity that comes with work with serving others. Now, on cool, quiet, and black September early mornings, I write columns for newspapers instead of delivering them. And yet, I know instinctively that my job is not possible without blue-collar workers from electricians to janitors who actually make it all go. So let your kid have that after-school job. Let them learn the responsibility, the pride, the social skills of the workplace. And to all the hard-working Americans, well, I hope that you will accept my humble thanks. I'm David Marcus author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.